Hey, hey, welcome back into the Trojan Talk podcast. I'm Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com. USC has lost two straight, and the doomsday folks are circling. Tough times. I'm on my way to Berkeley for the Cal game. Should, should be a get-right game for this USC team in all phases. Cal scuffling and struggling, but you never know. It's a road game. Things have been wonky this season on the road. We shall see. But there's a lot to cover today. I had a lot to say, but I didn't want to say it in a monologue at the top of the show. I wanted to say it all in conversation with our partner on this show, on this podcast, our resident Trojansports.com analyst, the former quarterback Max Brown. We had a great discussion. We hit all the notes, I think. Didn't talk a lot about Cal because there's so much else to discuss with this program with Lincoln Riley having a tough week, missing the first two days of practice while at home resting as he battles pneumonia, which sounds pretty damn serious. There's still four games left. There's still a Pac-12 championship race. I know the fans have mostly checked out of, but I don't think the team has. It's it's still there for them. Uh, obviously, they have to play a lot differently than they have over the last five weeks if they're going to steal some wins over this last month. But anyways, let's get into all that. Let's give you the show right at the top. No preamble. Here we go. All right, we got a ton to cover. Let's waste no more time and get right to it and bring back onto the show our resident Trojansports.com analyst, the former quarterback, Max Brown. Max, good to have you back on. Good to be back on. Wish it was in the uh, winning department, but I guess the loss makes the podcast all the more important to react to everything going on. We are going to react to everything going on. We're going to react to the reactions because, Max, if you didn't know this, the sky is falling. Lincoln Riley is leaving for the Chicago Bears. Caleb Williams is going to shut things down. This team is finishing 6-6. Six and six. Cliff Kingsbury is taking over the program. And the ghost of Clay Helton is never, ever leaving Heritage Hall or the Coliseum. At least that's what the fans tell me. Yeah, I'm trying to say, all right, there's lots to, of lots to unpack there. I think the... Uh, we'll, we'll get to yeah. it all. Don't worry. Well, no, it's funny. I mean, just some quick tidbit thoughts there. It's funny. I have some former teammates of mine texting me this week being like, hey, is the NFL stuff real? And I'm like, guys, it's mid-October. Like, even if you are were a franchise that was struggling right now, they're not talking about changing the head coach right now. That could be a different story after Halloween. That could be a different story once you get in November. But that, that stuff right now to me is absolutely crazy. Okay, I was going to do that later. Let's just start there because it is absurd. And it's absurd for a number of reasons. But – What's what's really baffling to me is how it's taken off like wildfire with really zero foundation. And in fact, after the game Saturday, Lincoln Riley said, mind you, unprompted, not asked. This was not a response to a specific question. This was part of a long response to a question about something totally different. Lincoln Riley says, there are going to be championship expectations here and those aren't going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We signed up to do this thing for a long time. Okay, I get if he was asked about his future and his status and that was his answer, maybe maybe you don't put a lot of stock in it. But why do people think this man is leaving in a month and a half if he's throwing that out there unasked, unprompted on his own? 
That would just be craziness. So that's part one. Part two is there's absolutely nothing to indicate that this is at all a real thing. Why would he want to leave his palatial estate in Palos Verdes overlooking the ocean where he has two young kids who seem to, I'm sure, love living there and, and he just moved his family two years ago? Why would he want to do that again? He took so much heat for leaving Oklahoma and it clearly affected him, the reaction to his departure. Why would he want to go through that again two years later by upping and leaving way ahead of schedule? If he wants to coach in the NFL, he'll have opportunities to do that for a long time. The man's 40 years old. I don't understand where this narrative's coming from. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I got, uh, I got two points there. I think one, um, the whole reason I think this whole NFL storyline even gets gets traction is because Lincoln showed that, hey, when I move from Norman, Oklahoma to Los Angeles, California, he is valuing quality of life, maybe more so than a coach that might be in, the, in, in a similar spot. Sure. And to your point, and to your point, like he enjoys living here. He enjoys working here. USC is what he thought it would be from a lifestyle balance, his kids, his family. So I totally agree with you that he, I, I don't, I don't think there's any shot that he's moving in the near term. I think long term, if we're talking three, four, four years down the road and there's a whole nother, uh, we're in a whole different phase and we're entrenched in the Big Ten and all that. And if Lincoln's looking for the next challenge and that quality of life is still part of him and he's saying, man, I'm getting worn down by the portal, the transferring and all that stuff at that phase, that's where I think, hey, potentially down the line, it could make sense because of it, because of the quality of life dynamic. And for those that don't know, when I say quality of life, in the NFL, you're not having to run around the country recruiting 12 months out of the year. And you're not having to be by your phone 24-7 all the time. And, and you're not having to deal with the portal. You're not having to deal with 17-year-olds asking you money. And so I do think that's and that's that I think that is a reason why a David Shaw and or a Chris Peterson got out of the co- coaching ranks. Not not entirely, but I do think that is a, that is a reason. And so at a, at a different phase, call it three, five years down the road, hey, maybe it's a different conversation. But right now in mid-October in year two, no, Lincoln wants the challenge of building this blue blood back to where uh, where he knows it could be, and I don't think he's going anywhere. It's a great point, and we had Ryan Cartridge from the LA Times on two weeks ago to talk about the feature story he wrote about Riley and about him kind of mulling over those things about how maybe NFL life is is an easier way of, to go about it, and he's certainly been outspoken about the lack of regulation on some of the uh, the college matters that have made life for coaches. Uh, much more difficult than they would have been five years ago. So those are valid points, and I could absolutely see him not being here 10 years or the full length of the contract. But I think he cares about legacy. I think he cares about perception. And to leave after two years when you got raked over the coals for how you left your last job and to leave unfinished business here in in a massive way, I just don't see that jiving with his competitiveness is the way he goes about anything so but the overall point being i've never seen anything like this where a story takes on so much life based on so little reality that like you said i've been getting texts all week from friends back east from uh, friends who cover other teams going what's the deal Is, is is riley really leaving after this season i'm like what are you talking about yeah no and the whole sickness thing only only uh only uh, elevates the speculation which i think at least in my 
my social circles, that feels like that's the, the biggest driver is you hear some of the NFL buzz that's way off in left field to, uh, to, to start the season, which, hey, maybe that's just a, the nature of coaching in L.A. And then after a, after a second straight loss and the team being in a position that I don't think we thought was possible to start the year, then you co- combine that with a sickness and the coach missing the Monday night show, and it kind of is almost the perfect storm for a uh, USC fan speculation. There's no doubt that that was awful timing for that to happen. But I mean, yeah. USC came out Wednesday and said he's battling pneumonia. He was back at practice. I mean, I have no reason to not take that at face value. But it's been like a bad – I mean, a lot of this is – is chalked up to just the reality of where we're at with social media these days. And that seems like a really broad and, and lazy commentary, but it, it's just, it's just so true that just, it's so easy to get things uh, traction just by throwing them out there. It's been like a bad game of telephone, you know, where someone, yeah. someone says something and someone else mishears one thing and tell someone else and they mishear part of it. And I was on our Cal message board because obviously USC plays Cal this week. So I was, I was dropping in there to talk about the game, and one of the posters goes, well, I'm hearing that USC's trying to make Cliff Kingsbury the interim coach and, and move on from Riley. And I, <laughs> I said, well, you must have some damn good sources. Cause, uh, <laughs> That's good. That's good. Now, now, where does that come from? The actuality is that it was put out there by uh, all of us on the beat, that USC was talking to compliance to try to get Kingsbury proved as a full-fledged assistant coach in the event that Riley's absence prolonged and that they wanted to have 10 coaches for the week. So that's what the actuality was, and somehow that became USC wants to shove Riley at the door and make Kingsbury the interim head coach. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And that whole getting uh, coach approval—that's not—that's not—that's uh, not anything new per se. I think it has a lot of traction because it's Lincoln Riley, and oh, you're uh, the coach that you're bringing off the bench is a former NFL head coach and Cliff Kingsbury, so it obviously gets headlines. But I remember when I was at USC and we went through all our coaching changes. They were always trying to elevate a GA. Funny enough, in that case, it was Kerry Colbert, the former USC receiver, now the receiver coach in the NFL for the Broncos, but like that was the guy that was getting elevated. So that's nothing new. The headlines are just a lot more trendy. Yep, yep, yep. Since we're at it, let's tackle the other big elephant that everyone seems to, to think that, uh, well, well, clearly now that USC is not competing for a national championship, Caleb Williams is just going to shut it down and not play the rest of the season. Um, I, I, would, I would sure be surprised if that happens. I mean, if they lose a couple more – Maybe. Maybe he misses the last two games or whatever. I don't even want to speculate because that just seems like kind of not in that guy's makeup. He's a pretty steely competitor. Like, you've seen him after losses in the press conference just looking like he was about to self-combust because he was just so affected by it. I don't see him bailing on this team. But more to the point, why would that even – let's look at it from a common sense standpoint once again. Why would that even serve him well? He's already the number one pick in the draft next year. What's going to make him look worse to NFL teams? Getting hurt nine months ahead of the next NFL season or bailing on his team when things didn't go well? Clearly, if he's trying to protect his NFL stock, I think playing out the string uh, at least the regular season is, is the way to go about that. 
I'm right with you. Yeah, I don't think a guy like Caleb's even wired to sit out. And let's keep this in mind, and SC fans, it might not look like this right now, but <laughs> we still have to play Oregon and Washington and, oh, by the way, UCLA, which I know on one side is like, oh, wow, Max, we're, uh, we're in trouble. Well, on the other side, there's a pathway to being involved for a Pac-12 championship. So it's not like it's a total throwaway season we're not we're not there yet i know for some sc fans it might seem like that and from a national championship perspective sure but i also know how a guy like a a quarterback uh, like caleb is wired in that there still is a championship to play for there still are high stakes to to play for and what kind of message would that show just as a competitor even not even to like screw the nfl standpoint but just a competitor into your inside yourself looking yourself in the mirror of hey, you have an opportunity to, to face off against Michael Penix here in a couple of weeks and Bo Nix here in three weeks. Like, to, to shy away from that, that's just not who Caleb is. I don't think it shows well for the NFL. I don't think it shows – I mean, it would be terrible for, for his teammates and whatnot. And I know the stakes are high in terms of, like, okay, the money on the line, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say that, oh, Caleb Williams should sit out and then also three weeks ago be like, oh, well, could he come back for call- to, to college because the money's so well? Like, those those can't coexist um, because presumably he's already taken care of in some capacity money-wise. I know it's not generational wealth and, and life-changing wealth per se um, like an NFL first contract would be, but Caleb's doing just fine. If we've learned anything, Caleb's fiery. He's going to still play because – Believe it or not, in my opinion, there's still a lot to play for. Don't get me wrong. It's not where we thought we would where be two weeks ago, but there's still a lot of, a lot of meat left on the bone. We're going to get more into that momentarily while we're on Caleb. I ranted about this last week, so I won't bring it back full force. But it does, I don't know, it, it kind of bothers me just the way he's been perceived this season, at least maybe outside of – the USC fan base and just yeah. picked apart for everything and any any comment he makes is just amplified in the in the worst way. He's he's such a now a household name that it creeps into even parts of my life that aren't work related. Where I'm on Facebook and I have friends that I haven't seen in 20 years from Kansas City talking about Caleb Williams on their Facebook feeds and going, you know. Clearly, the rest of the team resents his uh, his NIL money and this and that. Like, there are a few things I'm more sure of than to say that his teammates like revere him. Like, he's a very popular guy within the locker room, and he's done a lot of work to make that the case by being very inclusive of his teammates and everything he does. Whether that's taking the O lineman to the Heisman or to his Dodgers first pitch ceremony, or taking teammates to a Drake concert, or just spending clearly a lot of time off the field with them in the off season during the season, there's nothing to indicate that there's any wedge between him and the rest of the team. And the fact that that's another uh, storyline that just kind of matriculates out there. I have to imagine that even if someone tries hard to avoid the outside noise uh, in his case, it must just be like beating him down every week that he can't control all these mistruths and and things that just uh, take on life of their own, and he and he has no way to combat them. I I don't know how I would deal with that, with that personally. I think it's a great point, and I felt something similar watching a clip uh, Barstool 
for those that follow that big cat had a comment this week about like oh oh yeah like Caleb Williams and his antics and he just kind of said that like just as like it was matter of fact just yeah. off the cuff and I was like his antics and it was like yeah I, I guess he did the finger the the, the fingernail thing and like it, and, and I know his like okay his his wardrobe and his style is a little bit more cutting edge than players but it feels like people just like latch on to that and they latch on to the fingernail thing at utah and like that was the perception that they have of caleb and they see a few few interviews here and there but i'm right with you when you're around that the the usc program and you're inside the facility and you listen to caleb talk and you're, you're just around that whole point that whole program you're right people revere him and i think that confidence um, that he has is totally authentic which is why that if i was an nfl gm i'd be couldn't, couldn't, couldn't wait to, to get him on my team. And it's funny, I had a similar thought this week as well when I saw the odds for the first pick in the NFL draft. And hey, this is, this is not a, uh, this is not a gambling, uh, gambling podcast or gambling advice, but I saw that his odds were like minus 300 this week. And I was saying, you're telling me it's only minus 300? I, I think he is the absolute running away favorite, like way more than that. And not only to mention just from a talent perspective, but I also think, I, there's no GM that's going to be going to want to be the GM that passed up on Caleb Williams. And I was saying, man, the national narrative is that he's only minus 300, which trust me, I know that that means he's the favorite, but like Drake may is, you know, plus 100. And I was like, to me, the gap between him and Drake may from a play, from a play standpoint, it's not even close. So I'm, I'm right with you on that. And I feel like people have gravitated to just a couple national headlines that they've seen. And it's the, maybe off the field non football perception that people have of Caleb is then bleeding on to the to the on field evaluation, even more so to who he is as a leader. By all accounts, he's a phenomenal leader. I think he's really grown into that actually since he's been at SC. So I'm right with you. Uh, I think SC fans are more plugged into that, but nationally I'm with you on that narrative. Could you could you have imagined going back not even two years that a, Mike Bowman be unceremoniously uh, uh, jettisoned from uh, USC Athletics. Lincoln Riley would have compromised approval rating from this fan base. And Caleb Williams would be getting skewered uh, across national media. It's, it's really... Uh, People love to hate SC, I guess. That's what I take away from that. Okay, that's, that's a fair conclusion. That's good. I want to hit some more things that Riley said after the game on Saturday. And then we're going to circle back on Caleb and his performance and some other things from the game. But first of all, another thing that got a huge reaction was that Riley declined to make any players available to speak after the game. Now, I'm kind of more in the, in the median, in the gray on this, than, than most people. I do think it's a bad look. I do. Especially when you come off a, a bad loss and, and it looks like, well, you, you talk after all the wins, but, but no, we're not going to talk about the loss. It's a bad look, and I, I do think that Riley is – one of his strengths is not managing PR optics. Uh, I think that's come up a few times this year and over the course of the last year plus. That said, this was made to be like a crime against humanity uh, after the game. And what were we actually deprived of as reporters or the fans listening? A couple players fighting back tears and saying obvious things like our season's not over, there's a lot to play for still. I can live without that. It wasn't that damning of a of, of a loss on on my end as a reporter to not get that. So I think it's a bad look for them, but I also don't think it's something that still needs to be asked about 
on Tuesday as it was to Dennis Simmons, who had nothing to do with that decision and, and rightfully deflected that question. What were your thoughts about USC not making players available, which I guess according to those who have been around the beat for much longer than I have, say it's never happened? Yeah, I think um, I do think it was a bad look. I think especially after, like you said, the, the tough loss. I, I do think a lot of SC fans have to this day – you know, everything's compared to the Pete Carroll days when yeah. the program was at its height at highest and Pete ran a operation that was extremely public and nothing was hidden, it felt like. And everyone, um, it felt like everyone had a, had a mic in front of them, so to speak. And I know I felt that during my time at USC is like if any, if, if any of one of our head coaches went against what Pete did, then it was like, oh, they're doing the wrong thing. And I think every head coach has a different style. And I think especially nowadays with social media, it's it's night and day different um, in terms of controlling the storylines and keeping players focused than when Pete Carroll was here, like night and day different. And I do think over the past couple of years, just being around Lincoln from on, on radio shows and whatnot, he obviously was used to big-time college football. But I do think a little bit of the um, – the, the the wildfire nature of some of the headlines, some of the storylines at USC is different than at Oklahoma. I, I don't know this to be true, but I imagine he had a better, he had a, uh, uh, an easier way of kind of controlling storylines and controlling narratives around around Norman and Oklahoma and in Oklahoma. That's just not the case at USC, and I've sensed that um, a few times just in his interview responses over the years of him getting frustrated. Not not not, uh, not 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 like out of line or anything, but you can just sense the annoyance in his voice on certain storylines. Whether it's um, the defensive thing that 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 uh, that came up uh, a couple weeks ago, or whether it was um, even at times with, uh, with with criticism on like play calling at times. Like I've seen him get asked that, and he's like, "Guys, are you serious? I'm, I'm known as like one of the best uh, best." Uh, he doesn't say this, but one of the best play calls, and I think that's just unique. To, to Lincoln Riley, or sorry, unique to USC in that regard of these storylines can kind of take a life of their own that's that's new to, to Lincoln. And I'm sure he sat there after this Utah loss saying, I don't want that to happen. I don't want my players to, you know, be the start of that or uh, get put in a tough position. So we're just going to close the door on that. And I want to control the narrative. I, I want to uh, I want to keep everyone under wrap. And maybe it's something bigger than that. Maybe he feels like, you know, especially the defensive side of the ball, which is getting a lot of criticism. Maybe those guys, you know, don't have the moxie to answer those questions. I think that's one thing that I've observed from the far is outside of Shane Lee, I'm always curious who's that next leader and who's that next spokesperson, so to speak. I don't know necessarily who that is on the defense. I'm not saying those guys aren't, aren't good at talking in front of the media, but I do think, you know, maybe there, there is something there in terms of, um, who do we send out there in the media? I'm not sure. Um, but I, I do think it's a, a byproduct of, you know, Lincoln really wanting to control the narrative and try to keep things in-house, so to speak, after a tough two-game stretch that I thought I think he uh, never thought he'd be here. Yeah, I, I definitely know why he did it. I, I do think it was more trouble than it was worth for him because they, they do have the guys that can go out there and handle it. Send, send Dietrich out there. Send Mason Cobb out there. You know, even Kalen Bullock has really stepped up in terms of recognizing his role as as a as a prominent veteran on this team and and talking after most games, after most practices. Send two or three guys out there. Keep it short. 
and you just don't get the backlash that that came from it. Whether the backlash is, is warranted or not, and like I said, I, I don't, I wasn't really up in arms about it, but it just seems like those are easy things to prevent. Like just play the game a little bit. Anyways, you used a good phrase there that I want to kind of latch onto. You know, controlling the narrative around this team. He's been doing that since he got here, but it ran into a conflict on Saturday when he was asked about, you know, this team had playoff aspirations, maybe national championship aspirations, and, and those might not be in play now. How do you readjust the, the target for this year? And he acted miffed as to, as to how, well, like, where is this coming from? His, his answer, his quote was, we're in the middle of the season, you know. That's a dream world, right? You're fighting your ass off every single week. Like, we don't come in every single week talking about winning a national championship and going to the playoffs. I don't know where that narrative starts. Well, it, it starts from his very first few press conferences when he said he expects to compete for championships every year, and that begins immediately. It starts with Caleb Williams talking about winning a national championship this year, specifically all preseason. So to act like that was never put out there by this team that those were never the goals um it was interesting an interesting correction of the narrative midstream i thought yeah and i saw those headlines too um i actually sided a little bit more with lincoln on this and i might need to lean on you uh no, go to, for it. to uh to i forget exactly how the question was worded but i saw those tweets and i know what lincoln's saying because inside the program even if even if you're Alabama right now, or I guess not this year because they're not in the, the championship conversation. If you're Georgia right now, even Georgia's not talking about national championship aspirations during the week. At least, hey, maybe not. It maybe maybe it comes up t- here and there, but every single team across the country is talking about go one to know, go one to know, go one to know. Because if you start talking about national championship aspirations on a week in week out basis during the season, that's how you lose, and that's how you don't win the national championship. To the to the media's point, I under like I, I see how that connection's made because Lincoln's the one that in the off season when he first got the job, and then Caleb in the off season talking about the national championship aspirations. But that when that question was asked, and 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 uh, and and Lincoln took it more on the micro level, like the week in and week out basis, I got what he was saying, and I got the frustration that he brought about, and that it feels like the media then took that and was like, well. You said this in the off season, and here's here's where this weekly narrative has st- started. I almost felt like there was a disconnect that the uh, I don't blame the media for making this conclusion because that's their job, and uh, of course Lincoln's got to own everything that he said. But I didn't I didn't it didn't hit me as him backtracking or changing course. It was more like no, of course we don't talk about national championship week in and week out because. We can something can happen like last week where you lose and you're you're totally out of it. So that's how that hit me. Maybe it's more the player mentality, but I didn't have as much problem with that as uh, I know some people did. Okay, that's that's a pretty fair summation of that, and I can see the more micro level approach he was taking as, as you put it. That, that makes sense. Even still, the, those have been at least the playoff talk has been should have been no surprises. It's, it's it's been there all along. Uh, now, building off that, he, his most interesting comments, his most interesting comments was that he just he threw this out there. It just, he kind of just dropped a little nugget of insight or perspective, the way he sees things. He said, just having been in this a little while, you tend to 
when you get too focused on the outside things, which I think at times maybe our team has been, then a lot of times you miss an opportunity right in front of you. Very interesting to just kind of float out there that maybe at times our team has been too focused on the outside things. I then, we got the one more question warning, so I made sure I was going to talk over anyone who was trying to ask a question to make sure we got the follow-up asked, and I asked him, what makes you feel that way? And he went on for, for three plus minutes, just detailing how, you know, last year this team overachieved, which, which he's correct. It, it overachieved and, and there really weren't fixed expectations entering last year. There was a, a, a runway. They could have done anything last year and no one would have been in a true panic. I don't think instead they went 11 games and, uh, actually changed expectations along the way to the point where the ending became a frustration. This year's different. And he, he, he referenced, you know, winning, winning games and then hearing how you didn't win them by enough points, hearing the playoff talk, hearing other things. Uh, I'm sure a lot of what he was saying maybe pertained to Caleb and, and kind of all the, the critics and, and everyone pouncing on his comments like we talked about earlier. But what did you make of that comment and about that reveal that he thinks this team has been too focused on outside things? It hit me the same way. I was listening to that interview driving, and I remember being like, wait, what did you say? And I'm pretty sure I, I did uh, did rewind it to uh, to hear. I didn't realize you asked that question, um, but to hear the, the full the full response. Great question, though. That's why you uh, that's why you come listen to this podcast. Ryan's got all the uh, – the, <laughs> the good ones there um but i thought it was honest which i appreciated from him and i also think not only was it the college football playoff chatter the caleb chatter but i also think the defensive chatter too that i think right. uh, the team has heard throughout the offseason and has heard during the season and i think that that showed by you know the interview a couple weeks ago where caleb got a little uh snippy for lack of a better term of getting in there and giving his two cents on the defense and i think that's unique i think that's unique for the usc fan base to be honest i don't think every fan base throughout uh college football goes into the season where it's hey we have a negative attitude on the defense and it's on you to prove us to prove us wrong rather than i think a lot of fan bases it's hey we're gonna lean into the season and hope for the best and then if it doesn't work then we'll get upset not the other way around and i think those um uh, again that that outside chatter i i, I do think um impacted the uh, the team and you and you can see that by the way they uh, answer the uh the interviews over the past few months and i also think for lincoln a standard was set because of the success last year that hey oh you can transfer in here and we're gonna have success quickly and not that it's gonna be easy but that it's gonna be um seamless almost because of the standard that was set last year and then you had all these guys come in this year and you sensed that in their interviews it was hey i came in because you know they had caleb williams and we had an opportunity to uh get to a cfp game and that was it felt like a similar vibe for a lot of these transfers and you come in and you know the offense isn't perfect this year and you do get punched in the mouth and the offenses in the pac-12 are much better where defensively it isn't perfect and I, I do think that was, you know, the overall vibe of the program was very much, oh, if we did that in year one, then in year two, just wait, right? We're going to take that huge step. And that huge step just didn't happen. And I think it allowed, uh, or it was it was the root of a lot of uh, kind of looking around being like, oh, crap, this isn't, this isn't what a lot of us signed up for, even whether you were a transfer last year or a transfer this year. And uh, 
this is where I think, you know, building the culture of the program, um, like this week we're in right now, like this is where that's going to be, that's going to be tested because I think the plan that a lot of guys foresaw going into the season or transferred in here expecting to happen is not happening. Hence why we have two loss and it's kind of, it, it, it's, 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 uh, it's gut check time for a lot of those guys. On the point of expectations, let's talk about that. Let's refocus expectations ourselves here. What do we think this team is capable of the rest of the way? Four games to go, six and two, number 24 in the country, two top 10 opponents awaiting back-to-back weeks after this week. So it's Cal this week and then Washington, Oregon, and UCLA to close it out. Caleb Williams on Wednesday said what you would expect him to say and that he's not closing the door on the playoff talk and everything, but... I don't know. The go from number 24 into that window seems a, a bit of a reach uh, at this point. Pac-12 championship, like you mentioned earlier, definitely still in play. But that requires that requires winning out. What do you think is possible for this team? And, and not just possible, but realistic for this team. Yeah, I think realistic on the optimistic side is 3-1 and one to finish the season. I think realistic realistic is 2-2. Is, is, is two and, two. and I say that in the sense of Oregon and Washington are better football teams than us. And if we've learned anything from this season, it's that when teams come and play USC, they're going to gear up. And I know there's probably some people listening to this saying, well, Washington got, you know, taken to the wire versus Arizona State last week. Well, that's because they were sleepwalking. And I think they thought that they would absolutely destroy Arizona State. And that's not the case. Versus when you're playing USC and you're playing Caleb Williams, Everyone's going to gear up for that. And so I think the Oregon-Washington tests are going to be really difficult. And not only from a offensive standpoint, I think that's actually where I've changed over the past few weeks. Um, I thought there was a world where, hey, defense, you don't even need to be great. We're just going to outscore these teams. And our offense has, has shown, you know, the past few weeks that they – um, they can stall out for quarters and whatnot. And that's not gonna. That's not gonna cut it versus or um, Oregon and, and Washington, especially. Not only are they gonna gear up for SC, but they could have everything on the line for those two teams, whether it's CFP, Pac-12 title uh, hopes, or you know both those quarterbacks still in the, still very much in the Heisman race. So those are those are a tall test. I, I expect us to take care of business first. Cal, I think this is certainly a get right game for sure for the defense hopefully and then the game on the back end ucla i mean ucla we're in mid-october they're still figuring out where things stand for their at, at their quarterback position that's got to be a game that we get even though hey again that ucla defense is 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 a really good unit but that's where i'm at right now which is crazy because if you're hearing me say that that means that we're a nine and three team eight and four team um but that is the nature of the beast and that's the nature of the Pac-12 in uh, in 2023. I think you're spot on. If, if I was forced to wager my life savings, which is not a staggering <laughs> number, <laughs> even still though, it would have, it would, it would have mean a lot to me. I, I would probably I would probably bet on two on two the rest of the way. Uh, but I can see them stealing one of those games. Let's talk about the offense and what's wrong. And I have some specific questions, but let's start broadly give me your your wide lens what is off for this offense yeah i think the widest lens is that it's not just one thing and i think that's showed through in the interviews with the coaches the past couple weeks is it feels like the common answer is like we're taking turns uh making mistakes and 
you know, it's a fumble here. It's a missed blocking assignment here. It's a missed throw here. It's a bad call here. And it really feels like it's, it's everyone. And it's not just one thing, which to me feels like, you know, is that guy's pressing, right? And when one mistake happens, it's, the mindset then turns to, oh, we can't have the second mistake happen because our defense isn't good enough to, to pick us up. Or if we don't score on this drive, then are we going to score enough points to win the game? And I think that thought process is, 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 is a reality now. And that showed in Caleb's interceptions versus Notre Dame and that he throws the first one. And in my opinion, the second, and the third one were a byproduct of him pressing and trying to, you know, make up for the fact that he threw the first pick in the first place because subconsciously he might not say that but subconsciously in the back of his mind he knows that he doesn't have um the defense to you know pick him up uh, which i i think there's some of that going on i think i look at the offensive line and it's a group that is not able to dominate games i don't think they were poor totally per se last game but i do think in the context of last year where i felt really good about our interior offensive line and their ability to really you know impact things especially on the ground game i don't feel that way this year i think receiver wise you know it's interesting i think the depth is great but the rotating guys especially at that i feel like i know what um tosh washington's role is i feel like i know what um Mario Williams's role is, even though statistically he might not show up in, in a huge capacity every week, I feel like I know what they're trying to do with him every single week. Zachariah Branch, I still, I, I feel like I know his role. I want to see more, but it feels like, you know, they're making, they're intentional with trying to get him touches. But then it's that next receiver where it's, you know, Brendan Rice some weeks, it's Michael Jackson the third some weeks, it's, it was Kyron Hudson to start the season. It was, there was a big, uh, big third down in the Utah game in the second quarter or early third where they went to Deuce Robinson on a big third uh, a third down dig route like they're really rotating through four different guys there and to me I don't mind rotating but I think the rotation is a byproduct of you're just not sure exactly maybe not what you have but what you're just doing at that position and I think that uncertainty is something we didn't have last year when you knew that you were going to Jordan Addison on the outside and I think that uncertainty leads to maybe things not, and I didn't even mention uh, Dorian Singer too. I was, was going to say, yeah. Too. yeah, and I think that just—it's just uncertainty to me. That's what it is because at this point in mid-October, I don't—I don't care about the depth. I want to know who that dude is on third down, and we don't know who that is. And I think that did show a little bit in the Utah game when you had to come up with some some third down conversions and 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 didn't there. Um, so it's it's taking turns. I think uh, taking turns making mistakes, and I think the taking turns making mistakes is magnified um, when you know you feel like you can't make those mistakes. I felt that firsthand when I remember my time at Pitt, where we uh, we were we would practice really well, and we had a, we felt like we had a really good offense, and it wouldn't show up on Saturdays. And it was one of those things of you know the media is hounding you for what's going on, what's going on. You're kind of sitting there just shrugging your shoulders because you don't really know. And then it's a fine line of the more pressure you put on yourself to, to, to execute and whatnot. Well, then oftentimes that's how you make more mistakes. And then if you don't put the pressure on yourself to execute, well, then does that just make you yourself more lackadaisical? And that's not good either. And so it's this fine line. And I just feel like it's one of those things this season with the SC offense where, um, one mistake's leading to two, and then two's leading to four, and everyone's taking turns, and it's not just one position group or one fact that you can put your uh, put your thumb on. 
I think I think that's probably the best way to sum it up because I, I certainly don't have those answers, and it, it does seem like they don't either in a lot of cases. Uh, one specific question I have is, and it's it's come up a lot this season, is just the inconsistency in committing to the run game, especially when it's working. USC ran the ball better against Utah than any team has this season. And the offensive line did actually, I, I thought, show a nice bounce back from Notre Dame. They, they made the one switch, moving Mason Murphy inside to guard and Jarrett Kingston outside the right tackle. Josh Henson said that he felt they needed more, more strength, more push on, on the interior, and that, that Murphy was the guy for that. But then he also acknowledged, uh, I asked him a follow-up question. I said, is it also maybe possible that Kingston's just more comfortable on the outside? Because he, he played mostly tackle at Washington State. I mean, he played some guard there too. But And, and he said, yeah, and he kind of acknowledged it. And someone else asked, well, well, do you wish you had done this sooner? And, and Henson was like, no, that's not how I see it. But uh, it, it is interesting that that one little flip made a huge difference. But the point remains, they ran the ball very well. They averaged 6.3 yards per carry as a team. And that includes the lost sack yards for Caleb. Marshawn Lloyd averaged 12.3 yards a carry, but he only had two carries after the first quarter. Two. Seven for 86 for the game. Now, we're taping this right before Lincoln Riley's Thursday morning Zoom call, where I'm playing to ask him if Lloyd was maybe banged up after he took that uh, blindside shot on the incompletion that was initially ruled a fumble and then overturned to an incompletion, he got walloped without seeing it coming. And I wonder if that contributed to his lack of play the rest of the way. He did come back in for a little bit and obviously had, had the costly fumble, uh, but only two carries after the first quarter for a guy who was averaging tw- over 12 yards a touch to start the game. That's that's a head-scratcher. And Riley was asked after the game if he thought he should have run more, and he gave a pretty general, well, you know, you can always look back and say you probably could have done this or that. But it... They, they, they really abandoned it, and, and I, I don't know why. It's happened a few times. What do you make of the run game usage? Yeah, I think that is – I mean, it, it's so tough because on one side it's, all right, got to feed the rock to Marshawn Lloyd, and then on the other side it's, you know, if, if, if Marshawn Lloyd had just, you know, been going for three-yard three, three yard runs and four-yard runs and whatnot, it's – you know, on the other side, it's, oh, they're trying to activate Zachariah Branch and you have the Heisman Trophy winner and you're trying to util- utilize his skill sets. And I think two things, are, one, I'm in agreement. They should have should have run the ball more. But two, let's be clear with a couple of things. One, they were calling run plays there in the second quarter after that Marshawn Lloyd touchdown, uh, touchdown run. And the end was crashing and Caleb was pulling it on a couple of those run plays that then those end up being passes to, I think it was Lake McCree and Brendan Rice for one and Todd Washington for the other. And so those are run plays that then Utah's selling out um, to the run and then you spin it on the outside. And then those were like solid gains. They were like five, six yard runs, which, hey, that's what you're hoping for realistically um, when you are feeding the rock to Marshawn Lloyd. And then on the, other, on, the on that same side, if you're play, if you're the play caller and you're calling uh, calling uh, calling plays versus Utah, you have to feel like you have a huge advantage on Utah on the edge and not as much inside. So I don't blame Lincoln for, you know, especially early on in the second quarter when hey at that point he didn't think his offense was going to stall out, but trying to get the ball on the edge. So I can see where the thought process comes, and I can see where it's all right. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We ended up stalling out. Should have run the rock more. So I. I 
I, I do think, you know, we got to be careful with that because there was certainly a scenario where if you pounded the rock and, you know, Marshawn Lloyd, you know, is getting four or five kind of thing and, you know, Utah adapts to that, then it's like, all right, well, why are we running the rock versus Utah who has one of the best interior defensive lines uh, in the country? So I can see where it goes both ways. Um, but I, I do think those run plays were getting called at least a few times in that uh, early on in the second quarter. That then they, you were that then you were uh, you were spitting the rock out, and then two and then two. There weren't that many plays in the second quarter. Um, just in terms of if, if you're only if you're only looking at the hey number of carries that Marshawn Lloyd had, there weren't that many that many snaps. Snaps. So I think. Those both work hand in hand. I think if you ask that question, which you will today to Lincoln, I'm sure he, he said, hey, yeah, we should have made it a non-negotiable in that second quarter to feed the rock to Marshawn. Um, but and I think he, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty because I also see on the other side, it's, man, we got a healthy Zachariah Branch and let's try to activate him, which they tried to do with the swing pass here or there. And they tried to get out on the edge and put a ton of pressure with Caleb and, and his arm on the outside. So... I see it both ways, and you know that's where I actually respect Lincoln, and, and he's honest. He was honest in the in the post game presser, saying, "Yeah, there's a couple calls that I wish I, I could have back," and I'm sure those run play play calls early on in the second quarter were uh, were two that were front of mind for him. That's good analysis, and and also they they were down in the second half, so uh, this time sticking away, you're more inclined to pass. So I, I can definitely see the other side of things uh, as you lay it out there. Let's talk about Caleb. Lastly, he uh, 24 of 34, 256 yards, zero touchdowns. He obviously had the rushing touchdown at the end. Every week, our Taj Barkanikar does an in-depth film review and uh, his first and 10 breakdown. And it, it's really good analysis. And he's been on this for pretty much since the bye week, that, that, that Caleb has looked off to him. And in this last game, he really harped on – the fact that he saw Caleb stare down open receivers and just hesitate in a way that he wouldn't have last year. And he outlined a couple specific examples where he just he had a clear option and just ended up pump faking and, and ultimately throwing the ball away. Have you seen a different Caleb Williams? Do you see him not being the same guy he was last year? I have. I, I... Only, only a few plays here and there. Not enough to, you know, pound the table and and you know go as far as I know. Some people are going. I'm not saying your guys doing this, but I know some people are being like, oh, is you know, should we not be thinking about Caleb as the top overall pick and things like that? And is he a totally different player? I, I'm not there, but I do think there are plays, and it showed up. Um, it showed up in the Arizona game, and it almost and it worked in his favor. And it showed up um, the past couple of weeks, and it hasn't worked in his favor. In which it's just hero ball type of plays where I feel like there's plays where he could make a play fake and get the ball out of his hands quickly and then just move on. But instead, because he's had so much success of dropping back, running around, finding the big play with his arm or his legs, that I feel like sometimes he diverts to that when he doesn't need to. And it's that fine line, again, of you want to trust the playmaker in him and you want to trust his instincts, but you also, the whole, the, the reason those plays happen organically is because you're taking what the defense gives you in the first place and then when it's truly not open then you're able to run around and create and and whatnot and i think there are plays like a few plays a game that again showed up in the arizona game it worked in his favor because he's making the extraordinary play 
against Notre Dame uh, and Utah against better defenses, he, there are elements where he is trying to do too much. And I think it's, hey, take the check down right there and move on or put it on that guy's chest right now and move on. Instead, it's a pump fake or a flush out looking for that next that, that, that bigger play um, that ultimately ends up not being there. And, you know, you toss it up to, oh, he's trying to make a play and whatnot. And you love that. But then you also hate that because I do think that is um, that is a factor in why the offense has stalled because when you're not fully, fully, fully trusting the scheme of what's right in front of you, then you start doing too much. And then I think, you know, from a play calling perspective, then you, don't, you have to account for that. And maybe you try to do too much play calling, wise, play calling wise rather than just trusting what you have on the offense. So I definitely think there's some truth to that. I'm not willing to go as far as saying, hey, he's an entirely different quarterback and we need to start rethinking things. No, I'm not there. But I, I do think in meetings, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Cliff and Lincoln some of the narrative around uh, or some of the talking points to, to Caleb is just, hey, take what the defense gives you. Take what the defense gives you. That that thesis being out there, um, I'm sure, is something that's front of mind this week in practice. Well, we've kind of hopped on the offense this show. We've certainly talked about the defense at length in previous shows. We're not going to get too deep into it. But the one play that has to be talked about, obviously, is is the one that sealed the game. The, the second and 15, time running down, 26-yard, Bryson Barnes, uh, scramble that set up the game-winning field goal. And it was kind of just, I don't know what the right word is, not poetic, it, but fitting. Fitting if the defense was going to come, come unravel, that would come on a down-and-long situation where a quarterback was able to break contain and get out for a long game, which has happened against this defense so many times. And Grinch was asked about that play. I then tried to ask him more broadly, why is – why are those situations kind of a a persistent Achilles heel for this defense when it's third and long or, in that case, second and long? And I didn't really get an answer to that question. But I don't know if you want to take it specifically or, or, or broadly, but what do you make of that fatal flaw of this defense, and especially as it manifested at the end of that game? Yeah, I thought that call in that play, like you said, it was uh... – you know, I kind of encompassed a lot of the, the the struggles and the frustrations that the defense has had, not only this year, but uh, getting into bat last year. And for those that have wa- that watched uh, Colin Coward's episode with Joel Klatt, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday, um, they went in into that play, and, and Joel Klatt talked about uh, his frustrations with calling man coverage in that situation. And I do agree with that thought process in that when you call man coverage, you are leaving yourself susceptible to the quarterback Run. And again, we're talking about the final play, Barson Barnes, Bryson Barnes, the uh, escape to get not only within uh, field goal range, but comfortable field goal range to ultimately uh, kick the game winning game winning field goal. And Bryson Barnes, I wouldn't say he's immobile, but by no means is his are his legs like a huge, a huge scare right there. But when you go man coverage, which is what USC elected to do on that play. You do not have a defender that is accounting for the quarterback. And I know the casual fan always goes, oh, you need a spy. You need a spy. I push back on that. If you're doing a quarterback spy for Bryson Barnes, you leave yourself susceptible to an even bigger play. Um, and you should be able to play. You should be able to play good defense in that scenario with no quarterback spy. Um, and getting through p- rushing lanes. 
that 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 happens, I guess, as a defensive lineman. I mean, you got to be ultra aware that the only thing that beats you is the quarterback escape. And again, I think that falls on the defensive line for that happens but you just got that that just it just can't you you got to be able to you you got to know that even if a Russian four you got to contain the pocket so that that's one thing i think another thing is if you go back and watch that play Damani Jackson he hesitates and his guy ends up not being a not not uh, not getting the ball but you can tell he is not totally clear on who he's covering on that play he ultimately covers the right guy but it isn't crystal clear and i thought that was the theme in that game of on motions and shifts the secondary and the safety kind of that you know communicating to with, with one another like right up until the snap of the play and kind of running you know almost after guys a little bit and not just not totally being 100 percent um on time with where your positioning should be it showed up on that play with with damani jackson and then also with bryson shaw you know i know he's He's uh, he's getting uh, a lot of criticism, and I, I do think he's being he, he's doing the best that he can, and I think that that position is a weakness uh, for the for USC. That second safety spot, it's been a revolving door a little bit, but the angle that he takes, it's a really poor angle, which the safety's fitting on not only that play but the run plays all night long. There are three or four plays in that in that in that game where the safeties are not showing up in the run game and fitting fitting lanes and tracking where the ball carrier is going that's a weakness on this defense and it showed up on that bryson barnes play because that should have been a tackle for seven yards and you put that kicker in a really tough spot instead it's a huge gain on, on a byproduct of a, of a poor of a poor run fit and then putting all of that in together the demonic jackson the safety play the defensive line the lack of physicality uh, again shows up, and I know that's kind of a catch-all term, and it might, for some it might be uh, not a lazy term, but just an un, 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 unspecific uh, term, but that, that's the truth right there. You have a quarterback expe- uh, escaping the pocket. It's not just a Bryson Shaw thing. It's all safeties. It's all linebackers. It's a defensive line. You've got to be physical where, hey, even if he does escape the pocket, it's not going to ultimately be a 25-yard run. And so I thought that play really – showed a lot of the weaknesses that have showed up for uh, USC all uh, all game long in that one play that ultimately uh, broke the camel's back. It, it, really, it really did. It was it was the most fitting ending for that defense. Well, great stuff, Max. Uh, let's get some very quick thoughts on Cal. Obviously not going to del- delve deep into the matchup, but they're on the third quarterback this year for freshman Fernando Mendoza. What are your thoughts on the Golden Bears on Mendoza? Anything stand out to you? called Mendoza's first start actually a few weeks ago um, in which he played well versus Oregon State. Uh, Cal's offense was able to put up 40 points and yeah it's another year and another year in which uh, Justin Wilcox uh, has questions at the quarterback spot they, they, they really can't seem to find uh, any offensive mojo um, during his time there which if I was a Cal Bears fan I'd be, uh, I'd be frustrated on that. I know Justin Wilcox is too but Mendoza gives him the best shot um, in terms of, I think he does the best job of getting the ball out of his hands quickly, and they have much more of a passing attack with him behind center. And he's a bigger guy, probably 6'5", 230, but uh, I would say similar mobility to Bryson Barnes last week in that if it's there, he can make you pay, but by no means are they going to be calling you know, um, called quarterback run plays. Uh, on the outside, they have Jeremiah Hunter, they lost their second quarterback uh, receiver weapon, J. Michael Sturdivant, who's now UCLA's best receiver. They lost him in the offseason via the transfer portal. That would have been an exciting one-two punch. Now it's 
it's really all about uh, Jeremiah Hunter. And then uh, Taj Davis is their other receiver who uh, was also a in-conference transfer. He was Washington's uh, kind of odd man out in their receiver core a year ago. So they have, have some weapons on the outside. Jaden Ott's their running back. They're going to try to get him touches. I mean, we talk about giving Marshawn Lloyd touches. Jaden Ott, they try to get him the rock 20 to 25 times a game. I think he is uh, he's, he's one of the most underrated running backs in the country. He's a stud. He's an NFL type of running back if he can stay healthy. Um, he, he's really good, and I imagine USC's defense is, is trying to uh, take him out of the game. He's number one in the backfield, really good player. And then defensively, I think it's much of the same. You know, if you're going, to go, going up against Justin Wilcox and Peter Sermon, it's going to be a defense that – Hey, to the point that I just talked about of our defense, they're not that way in that they're going to be very, very, uh, very sound in their scheme. Uh, not going to try to reinvent the wheel. Those guys play hard. I, they don't, nothing skill wise necessarily sticks out to me from Cal's standpoint, but they're going to make you earn everything. Um, and their safety, uh, blanking on his name at the top, uh, off, uh, Patrick McMorris, number nine, I believe it is. He's uh, he's a really good player. They got him from San Diego State. He's been a stud for them at safety, and I imagine uh, he, they need him to be in double-digit tackles this game to, to have a shot. So this is a game that USC should take care of business with. I think USC wins this by, um, I'll say, 14 points. But uh, if, if USC shows up sleepwalking, um, paying attention to the, to the Husky game coming up, then uh, Cal could, could make this an interesting fight. Great analysis. I'm going USC 34-27. I just uh, I'm going to presume that all things will be tense and close with this team until shown otherwise. I respect it. Hopefully it's not, but uh, let's get this thing back on track. All right, great stuff, Max. Great to have you back on. Thank you for your analysis and your time. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. All right, thanks to Max Brown. Always appreciate it. Always great insight and perspective. Brings a lot to this program and to our site, and we really appreciate him. Also, if you did not see it, please check out Taj Barkhandekar's analysis column this week, his first and ten column, where he lays out ten thoughts. And he had a lot of strong takes this week. A lot of thoughts about Caleb Williams and why he's off and the ways in which he's off. And again, it's all relative. He gets compared to the player that he is at his peak, and he hasn't quite been that of late. And so Taj breaks that down. I think pretty well and pretty pretty specifically. And then he has some, obviously, some thoughts on the, on the defense. And uh, specifically some, some strong takes about he thinks they're playing the wrong personnel at a few spots. And he just kind of comes out and lays it out how he would do it differently and why. It's a great column. It's gotten great feedback. And I think a lot of fans have agreed lockstep with what he laid out. So if you haven't read it, please do. If you're not subscribed to Trojansports.com, please do. Join us on Saturday for the in-game chat on the board. Always a good place to be during the game. With that, I got to hit the road on the way to Berkeley. We'll have much more coming for you. Thanks as always.